Hey everyone and welcome to Risky Business, your weekly information security news and current affairs show. My name's Patrick Gray. Adam Boileau is back on deck this week and he'll be joining us in just a moment to talk through all the week's security news. And uh, yeah, it's actually a very interesting run sheet this week. So uh, yeah, fun is in store. Uh, this week's show is brought to you by Extra Hop and Extra Hop's Ted Driggs is this week's uh, sponsor guest. He was on the show about a year ago talking about how we should really start thinking about putting together software bills of behaviors as well as uh, software bills of material, right? So uh, that interview got a huge reaction actually when we ran it. And yeah, Ted is back this week to tell us how that effort is progressing. Uh, as you'll hear a lot of the behavioral data on software, it already exists, but is kind of being hoarded by different vendors. Uh, no one really wants to make it open. So that is actually a really, really interesting interview. So do stick around for that one. Uh, a quick note, there will not be a weekly show next week, uh, but in its place, we are running a long-form interview I did with Equinix CISO, Michael Montoya, about the uh, the Equinix ransomware incident. And, you know, these types of... I don't think I've heard an interview like this. It's a vanishingly rare type of interview uh, in which we have got a great case study from a CISO uh, who got out mostly alive after going hand-to-hand -hand against ransomware operators. Uh, so we'll be running that one Wednesday afternoon next Next week Australia time so I do hope you'll check that one out but let's get into the news now with Adam Boileau and uh, mate we've got a fair bit of stuff to get through this week and uh, we're going to start off with some ransomware stuff sorry to everyone I know you know we, we've covered it so much but it is one of the big things happening uh, and it looks like uh, a, a bunch of big ticket attacks have kicked off in Europe uh, affecting oil and transportation services we've seen uh, things like you know oil port terminals impacted to the point where certain flights have had to be cancelled due to the impact on refuelling and, and distribution. This is a pretty big deal. It's just interesting seeing it happen somewhere besides the United States. Yes, there's been reports of attacks uh, on a company called Swissport that provided fuel for uh, aviation services. Uh, and then, yes, some uh, reports of attacks uh, that have affected fuel handling companies and ports in Germany and Belgium uh, and the Netherlands. And I mean, given that energy supplies are super important, and as you say, like we saw this happen in the US, and it certainly had a pretty big impact, both in terms of, you know, the effect of energy on people's lives, but also, you know, how we were talking about ransomware and the political aspects and so on. So, yeah, definitely pretty big ticket items and, you know, some quite serious crews uh, behind it, the Black Cat crew, which is kind of begat from from Evil and Darkside, Conti, you know, people who are pretty serious operators uh, up in these sorts of systems. It's pretty sobering, um, especially, you know, given the situation in Europe with, you know, concern about energy supplies in general and, you know, gas pipelines to Russia and so on. You know, it, it's got to be a thing that's uh, got a lot of people worried. And, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of, you know, strategic meetings being held to talk about it in the hand ring and so on and so forth. Well, it's interesting, right? Because there's been, in some of this coverage, they're kind of implying, oh, you know, maybe it's the Russians doing this, you know, the Russian government somehow orchestrating this. Uh, we do have a piece here from Adam, Adam Janowski over at The Record where he's got some unnamed, uh, you know, European government official who's investigating this saying, well, it doesn't really appear to be coordinated. Um, I've got to say, I'm a little bit surprised by the coverage that's trying to imply that perhaps this is Russia flexing because it doesn't strike me that ransomware and your biggest energy customers would be something that would make sense at all. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, so, so there are people sort of implying that this could have a Russian government uh, uh, angle to it, but I just don't see it. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, it could easily be patriotic Russians just kind of doing their bit, but it also could just be ransomware people looking to make money, right? And yeah. energy companies are certainly easy targets. But um, if you're but a patriotic Russian, do you go and attack Russia's biggest sort of energy customers? Like, that doesn't make sense. Well, but I mean, I don't know that sense necessarily matters. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Russia's oh, not patriots, always known for... Patriots of all stripes, right? <laughs> well, well, so well yes, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it apps, you know, or it could just be stuff that was already in the works and just happens to kind of line up this way. But um, yeah, I mean, security of energy supply is certainly a big topic in Europe at the moment, and this is going to be getting a bunch of attention. And yeah, there are people for whom that narrative, you know, that, oh my God, maybe it was the Russians, you know, that would fit some other interests. So perhaps that's why we are seeing it you know, discussed with that lens, even if the technical attribution just says, hey, this is Conti, this is, you know, Black Cat uh, going about their business, making money. Yeah. Uh, and I will say too that there's nothing wrong with being a patriot, but when you start describing yourself as a patriot in your social media bios, it's a bit of a red flag. <laughs> I'm just going to put that out there. Doesn't matter where you're from, that's a bit mm-hmm. of a universal global red flag. Uh, we've got another story here, ransomware-related one from NBC News, written by Kevin Collier. It's it's a follow-up on a an attack against a payroll company called uh, Kronos. This happened late last year. But this is just a really nice story. Uh, It's a a bit of a depressing write-up, honestly, Uh, looking at the impact of this ransomware attack on some of the workers who've who've been impacted. It's nice to see this sort of reporting that's connecting uh, ransomware attacks to harms against ordinary people. Yes, because we we sometimes see numbers about the value of ransomware attacks or what it's cost to business, but yeah, what that actually means for people on the ground, right? In this case, you know, because the payroll company was, uh, you know, unable to process like timesheet collection, they ended up making up like averaged pay runs for people who would, you know, normally clock what hours they had done. And as a result, you know, they're not getting enough money or they're not getting what they're owed or whatever else. And the example here was in a, you know, a Coca-Cola distributor uh, in, in the US uh, and, you know, talking to individual people involved. And so, yeah, adding that human element to it, is really important because we don't often, you know, there's so much kind of computer and bleep bloop and internet and we yeah. do forget about the about the human parts of it. About uh, the actual uh, human beings. Yes. Yes, who are suffering because of this stuff, right? And they exist. And, um, you know, last week, I gave last week's episode the headline, sometimes a banana is just a banana, right? When talking about <laughs> Russia's, uh, talking about Russia's actions against cyber criminals domestically because it does feel like perhaps cracking down on computer crime is just something Russia is doing now and I don't know that it speaks to some broader geopolitical strategy. Now, with that in mind, we've got another story here from CyberScoop. Uh, apparently a bunch of, I think it was at carding forums and like underground forums in Russia uh, have been shuttered by the Ministry of Internal Affairs. Yes, there was a couple of, of sites taken down and some taunting comments from the Russian police, you know, in the in the source of the takedown pages saying, you know, which of you is going to be next? Um, but yeah, a few carding forums and places that were doing like initial access broking, uh, broking, initial people who are selling initial access on forums. Um, they, they were an initial access brokerage. There brokerage. There we go. Yes. <laughs> Who needs a forum? Forum's totally gone. Brokerage. That's the new. The yeah, new yeah. 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 Um, but yeah, you're right. They do seem to be taking down. You know, doing some stuff, arresting some people, taking down some forums, and you know, some of those Russian carding forums, like some of these, are pretty big. Right. They will make a reasonable dent. You know, domestically and internationally for them, and you know. It, I guess we always want to see with Russia, you know, a really smart, clever, Machiavellian sort of, you know, scheme. But a grand you know, plan. 
yes, like we kind of want a, you know a beautiful, amazing narrative that ties everything, but maybe that's just not how it be. I don't well, know. Well, I think I think so. I was talking about this with Tom Uran earlier, our uh, you know seriously risky business newsletter editor, and. It's interesting, right? Because you're talking about a country where most of the impact of the crime was felt outside of the borders. They don't have they they don't have a constitution that allows them to extradite their citizens. So you wonder how motivated domestic law enforcement in Russia would have been to deal with this when it wasn't really causing any problems for Russia, sort of thing. And now it is because everybody's complaining about it. So I guess it's maybe just finally got to the point where they're sufficiently motivated to go and do something about this. But I think we need to maybe rethink the extent to which these criminals have enjoyed state protection because they look... If I was if I was a Russian high profile Russian cyber criminal right now, I would be maybe renewing my passport, you know, <laughs> booking some tickets, taking a quote unquote holiday somewhere. Yes, I mean clearly, if some people are being arrested, then yeah, you got to got to worry whether your protection was effective or whether you know heads have changed. You know, people have moved around in positions. Maybe whatever bribes you paid are no longer effective. Maybe you're just being shook down for bigger bribes. Maybe you know who, you know, who knows, right? Who knows what's going on over there? Uh, if anyone does know and would like to explain to us, you know, poor humble Westerners, you know what's going on in St Petersburg, then that would be useful. Yeah. Uh, now, Vodafone Portugal is apparently having a hard time. Ooh. We're not really sure if this is DDoS or ransomware. Catalan wrote that one up for the record, but I guess that's one that in the fullness of time we will uh, come to understand. And just back on Russian ransomware crews, you know, Dmitry Smilianets over at the record has got another one of his truly weird interviews with a ransomware crew where they sound like they're a vendor because they're talking about how no one offers as complete a feature set as them. And <laughs> it's just so weird, man. Like, I just sort of wonder, like, we're not get, we're getting diminishing returns from these interviews, I guess, because they, they're all just kind of the same. They read like sponsored interviews, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. It does. It feels like, you know, you're talking to a vendor sales guy and they're pitching, you know, pitching all their wares. And, and like one of the questions uh, Dimitri asks... Uh, is like how the special features of their malware, you know, of their ransomware as a service platform works. And the answer is literally like a bullet pointed copy paste from their like marketing material um, or their, you know, their help or, or whatever else. Um, and yeah, it, it just, it reads like poor quality marketing. Um, yeah. And then the last question asks them to comment on uh, investigations by Krebs uh, into one of the developers that was involved. And it is great to get these perspectives out on the mainstream website, not just on some forum, you know, that you have to speak Russian to get into. But yeah, it's, <laughs> it is always a strange, a strange read. Now, the story that I woke up to today, uh, you know, here in Australia that had already captured the hearts of Americans... <laughs> was this this uh, arrest of a couple in New York who seem like a couple of weird people. I'm going to be honest. One of them did, does like YouTube cringe rap about, uh, about cryptocurrencies. I think Kevin Collier was the first one to find that. And then Lorenzo used that as the hook on his story about this. But anyway, over advice. Uh, but yeah, a couple has been arrested in New York and $3.6 billion dollars of Bitcoin has been seized from them. Now, they've been charged with laundering the proceeds of the hack of Bitfinex back in 2016. Now, there's so many weird and cool things about this story. I think the weirdest and the coolest thing about this story is when the hackers actually took that Bitcoin, it was worth something like $100 million. And now, it's <laughs> even after they've spent 
you know, something like a billion dollars, right? The three, it's now it's worth 3.6 billion. So this forced hodling, the people who are going to get their Bitcoin back, I, you know, I think they've got like a 5,000% return from the forced hodling. It's just crazy. <laughs> and, and then you read this thing and you realize that laundering Bitcoin is not actually that easy. I mean, these people were doing stuff like Walmart gift cards and $36 billion in $1,000 gift. I mean, that's a lot of flat screen TVs you're going to have to sell on eBay, right? Uh, that you got using your Walmart $1,000 cards. Like, it's just crazy. They, these, they, they, they strike me as the, the dogs who caught the car. These two. Well, exactly. Yes, right. I mean, how do you launder billions of dollars? Right. Turns out it is actually legit difficult, even with Bitcoin. And yeah, the, like the fact that the money got followed effectively and they found it and seized a bunch of it does illustrate the challenges, right, of of stealing this currency. And yeah, the idea that you know you would, if you received a punishment proportional to the value of your crime. And through the process of taking years to launder it, because I mean, this is like from 2016 was the Bitfinex hack. So like six years to launder it, and as you, and as you say, you've hodled, been forced to hodl, and now it's gone from 100 million to 3 billion. It's like, do you get punished for stealing $3 billion or do you get punished for stealing $100 billion? I like, don't think that'll make much difference. You know, they're, they're, so far- <laughs> It should though. <laughs> so far, it's not alleged that these two actually stole- the Bitcoin, but who knows, right? Like yeah. they've, um, DOJ is going to come down on them like a ton of bricks. Apparently they're still investigating the theft itself. But when it's funny, right? Because I know someone who had, uh, and I mentioned this on the show before, I know someone who had some Bitcoin in Mount Gox when Mount Gox got owned. And now even, you know, they're getting some of that back, but they're getting a proportion of the Bitcoin that they had, like not the dollar value. So they've actually made like a couple hundred grand because of this, <laughs> this same thing. So pretty much the way to make money out of Bitcoin is to have some money in an exchange that gets hacked and then you get some of it, you know, like 80% of your Bitcoin back 10 years later at a greatly inflated price. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Right. And that stops you messing. It's like a term deposit, right? It stops you yeah. messing with it. You get forced to hodl and and, and here you are. <laughs> Mandatory hodling. <sighs> It's just this. Yeah, the story is so stupid. Like the the. I don't know if you watched any of her cringe rap because Lordy did make me cringe. But I mean, they're also like influencers. And yeah, like yeah. One they're of them, like they're just like every annoying person on the internet yes, kind of yes. rolled into one yes, or two, yeah, I should say. Yeah, yeah. It's so bad. Uh, but hey, I mean, it turns out following the money does actually work, and you know, maybe they'll get some come up months, and some people are going to get some Bitcoin back. They spent a bunch of the money on NFTs, and I really hope that's how they got. <laughs> I really hope that's it, that they got snapped because they were using stolen Bitcoin to buy and if bought Ape NFTs on like OpenSea or something, that'd be so good. That'd be so good. They should get like extra prison time just for being so irritating, I think. Anyway. Oh, God. Uh, Catalan has a write-up about this NetWalker ransomware affiliate in Canada. Uh, he's been sentenced to seven years. We've kind of reported on this guy previously after him being, he, he was arrested in January, 2021. And we've reported on this guy's journey through the, through the, through the court system. But like, he was really prolific, this guy, his name's Sebastian uh, Vachon Des, Desjardins. And, um, yeah, very prolific criminal. I think after last time we spoke about him on the show, uh, Brian Krebs actually sent me a message. He's like, no, that guy was busy, <laughs> right, for a very <laughs> long period of time. But, uh, yeah, he's got seven years for his trouble by the look of things. Uh, yes, and he's also uh, being made to pay restitution to a bunch of the victims that were located in Canada. Uh, I think of the 30-odd million or so that he's alleged to have made you know, from um, hacking people, 
uh, he's being, I think, what, 3 million of that, 2.8 was um, Canadian, was uh, for companies there. And yeah, they're actually going to get some money back, which, you know, given it's been quite a long time, I'm sure they're going to be surprised to see some money. But it, it's good that this process has finally, you know, resulted in you know, some restitution being paid. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Now, uh, you and I, a couple of weeks ago, spoke about this uh, thing the IRS was doing in the United States, uh, doing face-based authentication using this service called ID.me. And you were saying, well, you know, not so sure about it going to a private company. But yeah, it's it's, it's a hard one because you don't really want the government to develop that because they won't do it competently. So it's, you know, like, it's a bit of a pickle. Anyway, the IRS has shit-canned its contract with ID.me because uh, people were starting to get in a flap about it. Yes, they've said they're going to very quickly develop uh, their new authentication system in time for, you know, all of the tax stuff that has to happen in the US, uh, which, you know, fills, I'm sure, everyone with confidence. Uh, but, yeah, it was interesting to see that, you know, kind of turn around relatively quickly. And, of course, you know, there were congressmen and so on getting involved and everyone, you know, kind of kicking, kicking that particular um, issue around and... You know, obviously there's real challenges with facial recognition. Um, so, you know, maybe this will see some, you know, maybe whatever comes out of this will actually be beneficial. But the idea that a tax agency is going to turn around a replacement. Yeah, something that's been un- under development for presumably quite a long time with a huge well, data set and whatever. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, you know, I... I guess we'll see how much of a mess they make. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Something to look forward to. Mm-hmm. Uh, moving on, we've got this one from uh, CyberScoop written by Tim Starks. Uh, the Department of Homeland Security in the United States has assembled its Cyber Safety Review Board. Uh, this is an initiative that's been coming together over the last year or so. This is like your, you know, your your air crash investigation style board, but for cy- major cyber incidents sort of thing. Dmitry Alperovich actually uh, has been named to the board. I think there's about 15, 15 people on it, 16 people on it. But um, I think they're still kind of working out exactly how they're going to structure these investigations, the sort of stuff that they're going to look at. But it's a little unclear how much of their findings will be made public. Uh, but hopefully, hopefully the useful parts will be made public because these sorts of incident investigations, are, you know, you can really learn a lot for them, I think. Yes, like this is a really good initiative, uh, and they do have some, you know, reasonable firepower on on you know the first set of people in the board. We mentioned Dimitri. There's you know Heather Atkins from Google, Kenny Mazuris, and you know a bunch of other people that we've had on the show over the years, even. So you know, it does look like a pretty reassuring crowd, and you know the fact that it's going to be somewhat closed because they may receive you know confidential you know classified information as part of the you know the work that they have to do. So we don't immediately get access to all of their material uh, or conclusions, but I'm sure they will be all very keen to make sure that the you know the work that they've done is shared as widely as is possible you know whether you know an air traffic you know safety investigation style thing will work and you know work as well in the computer industry i mean you know i hope it will be effective because i mean you know a coordinated you know kind of central place to learn from a bunch of these incidents with all of the necessary access and firepower to do it would be amazing I also imagine the outcome's going to be pretty depressing for all the people involved because, you know, they're going to see a lot of very common themes that are very, very difficult to but solve, that's, but, but that's we've got to do good. it, right? That's good. We, yes. If we can start narrowing down on like, oh, wow, this, you know, particular thing that everyone does wrong tends to lead to, you know, bad things happening. Well, you know, maybe that gives us some indications of, about what the worthwhile baseline controls or detections are going to be, right? So uh, their first report is going to look into the Log4j thing. Um, and I should also, also mention too uh, that next week... Uh, 
um, yeah, there's no weekly show, but as I mentioned at the top of the show, you know, we've got this amazing interview with Michael Montoya from Equinix talking about Equinix's ransomware incident. Uh, and it's just, look, it's just such an interesting interview because it's so rare for a CISO to, you know, come onto a podcast and talk about an actual breach, right? Or, or a ransomware incident. So, uh, and you know, people will hear this interview next week. I learned a lot from it. And he was very forthcoming as well. You know, I think we can all learn uh, from these types of failures. But it's uh, look, it's a great interview. You're all going to hear it next week. But I think the thing that made it really interesting from my point of view is that we'd seen the news about Equinix and it's like, wow, Equinix got ransomware, but they actually did okay out of it. Like they were able to minimize... The, ex- the fallout, the extent of the damage, and they did a lot right. Um, so I think there are lessons to be learned there. And as I mentioned, uh, that one will be up next week. Um, staying in Washington and the uh, cyber incident reporting legislation that kind of didn't make it into the last defense authorization bill looks like that's back on the agenda, you know, watered down a bit, but it looks like critical infrastructure providers in the United States, if this thing finally gets up, will have to report uh, either when they've had a, you know, cyber incident or they've paid a ransom. Uh, this is uh, Martin Matashak wrote this one for, for the record. Yes, this one combines, I think, some of the previous bills that have been introduced or previous wording that have been introduced uh, that didn't make it through and, you know, kind of juggles it around a bit. But I think the, the, you know, even if this particular variation of it doesn't make it through, I think it's kind of clear that there is enough, you know, kind of motivation to come up with something to solve, you know, to provide guidance for people to report incidents and how, you know, how and when the numbers may change. But, you know, the fact that there's people from both sides of the house in the U.S., pushing this, you know, it looked like it will end up in some form uh, being a law and, and everyone's going to have to consider, you know, consider what that means for them in terms of their ability to detect and, and respond and report appropriately. But anything that gives us more data uh, and provides, you know, better ability for, you know, organisations like that, you know, the review board we just talked about to be able to go and, and understand what's happening is going to help. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we've got some technical news here from Catalan Kimpanu. And, you know, we've spoken about this uh, Microsoft Windows installer vulnerability that was being used uh, uh, by the Emotet crew where they could basically spoof SIGs, make malicious packages look legit. This is to do with the MSIX file packaging uh, for, you know, it's like an XML manifest where developers describe the installation process and, you know, what files are needed. And then, you know, your computer can go out to the internet and download stuff and whatever um but yeah you could you could sort of forge signatures to make stuff look legit and emotet were going berserk with it microsoft's actually disabled the msix protocol handler uh right now which seems a pretty drastic measure but maybe a necessary one Yes, this was definitely being used in a pretty widespread manner and it was just, you know, such a useful technique to be able to social people with something that looked legit using the legitimate installer, um, you know, with, you know, how else are you supposed to validate an installer as, you know, legitimate other than when the Microsoft thing pops up and says, hey, this is signed and trusted, yay. Um, So they've uh, turned off the protocol handler that allows you to do this from directly within the browser. You can still download the package files and install them normally. Uh, So in that respect, you know, the, the kind of corporate software deployment uses of this should be kind of unhindered. Yeah, but this by might this stop, uh, I, you know, hidden iframes from being able to throw up an install dialogue. 
yes, exactly. Like the sort of things that people were using it for, you know, in web-based phishing. Yeah, this will at least make that uh, not happen quite so much. But it's just depressing that, you know, a software installer hooked to a web browser protocol handler wasn't a thing that got a bit more attention earlier on. Like the fact that we had to go through the process of shipping this, having bad people use it having Gossy the dog tweet about it a few times and now it gets turned off, right? That's a yeah. process that perhaps we didn't have to go through. I mean, it's funny, right? It's like Microsoft's done the good the good right thing here, but geez, talk, they took their time, right? They did, they did. Yeah. Uh, another one from Microsoft now, and this is, there's some interesting <laughs> elements. of them taking their time, yes. <laughs> yeah, there's some interesting <laughs> elements to this because you and me both had our moment of like, God, we're old and out of touch and don't really understand this. But uh, Microsoft is blocking macros in... Uh, internet obtained files right so uh, by default which is about bloody time right to allow people to actually to actually do this so that's a positive but we'll, we'll talk about the confusing bit next but um yeah what's your gut reaction to this I mean, obviously, it's about time, I think, is everybody's reaction. Um, you know, macros have been being abused for, you know, almost as long as there has been Microsoft Office with macro support um, in some, you know, some variety of form. Uh, and the warning dialogues they've thrown up over the years just haven't been effective. And this, you know, it's about time they actually did something a bit more serious. And yes, turning off macros by default and, and there's some nuance to this right i mean there is um still the ability for people to enable it via group policy there's still the ability to uh, have signed macros that run automatically or where the document comes from a trusted source and so what they've actually done is they have hooked um word to use the the mark of the web uh, it's a you know flag set on documents that originate from untrusted sources which kind of goes back to the internet explorer you know, kind of trusted zones mechanism days. And if it is marked as coming from the internet, then macros are just disabled by default. That's, I mean, is absolutely the right thing to do. And it's about time. Uh, it's going to put a little bit more pressure on on that specific mechanism, the mark of the web mechanism being now a much more important security control than perhaps it was previously. Um, but yeah, this is just, it's the right thing to do. And it's about time. Yeah, there's a great screen cap uh, there that came apparently from Fortinet, which shows an Excel file open, and it's it's all in the Excel green with the Excel logo. You know, this is what the user sees, and it says, document created in earlier version of Microsoft Office Excel. To view this content, please click Enable Editing from the yellow bar, then click Enable Content. And it's just such a convincing-looking set of instructions, right, that I, I just, yeah, that they needed to do this. Uh, where it gets confusing, though, is this story said that, uh, you know, this change will apply to uh, Microsoft 365 customers. And I'm just thinking, how the hell do macros work in 0365? And I asked you and you're like, I don't know either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, sort of the line between what's your, you know, what's running on the web end and what's running on your local machine in 365 is very confusing. Yeah. <laughs> um, and of course, they're also backporting these fixes through a bunch of the older, you know, like traditional Office versions. Like going back to, I think, Office 2013, they're going to patch it back to. Um, but yeah, I, I am still not 100% across how... No macros work in office 365 like in the in the web-based versions of everything or the mobile versions of everything like it's all like, yeah that, it's all it all got confusing scary. right because i i you know i remember when say 10 years ago when there were just adobe pdf reader bugs and uh what was it Foxit? Foxit yeah, was yeah, Foxit, yeah, yeah so yeah. Foxit was just spraying shells everywhere as well so you know someone would send you a pdf and you'd you'd find some sort of online viewer <laughs> to have a look at it. But, you know, browsers have become that much more sophisticated and, you know, what's on the web? What's on the endpoint? It's all a bit confusing. Are they the same thing? It's, you know... 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. And especially, you know, the, the data is also very mobile, right? If you're using Office 365 and then your files live in like cloud SharePoint, but your drives are mapped locally and then there's like document previewers. <laughs> and, like, it, we're just in a world where who even knows how anything works anymore? Yeah. You know? Well, and people who are younger than us, Adam, that's, people who, who, you know, that's, that's the answer. <laughs> yes, people who are, you know, half our, half our age. Yeah. <laughs> people who are half our age understand how this stuff yeah. works. Yeah. Oh, God, it's amazing. <laughs> if anyone understands this and wants a job... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in Australia and New Zealand hit me up. Uh, uh, interesting stat out of Microsoft. I thought I'd lump this one with all the other Microsoft stories. Uh, it's another one written by Catalan, but uh, Microsoft says that uh, MFA adoption among Azure Active Directory uh, customers is about 22%, uh, which is yeah, a little bit on the low side. Yeah, and I think that's probably a result of people treating AAD as just a replacement for their on-prem AD and migrating you know, migrating to the cloud whilst still pretending it's like on-prem, you know, internal network. Uh, I think that's, mm. that, you know, in the customers that I've seen, the environments that I've seen, that's kind of why, I think. Yeah, no, it is. Um, and I think it's just interesting to mention that as a baseline figure because you would expect it should start... I'm not terribly surprised that it's 22%. Um, it, it, it didn't shock me, but I would hope to see that increasing in by double-digit amounts uh, at least once a year, right? You would hope that you would get that to like, you know, 60%, 62% in four years or something. Yeah, I would certainly hope to see some rapid increase of that number, you know, ideally sooner than that, but anything we can get. Catalan has one here. Google Cloud is adding a uh, crypto miner detection for its GCP customers, which, yeah, I mean, I think all the cloud providers should do this, right? When you think about the number of workloads that are getting popped and then crypto miners are being spun up and then the customers have to, you know, often eat the bill, just having something that can send you an email or an alert <laughs> saying you're at 100% CPU on this, uh, you know, on this tenant would be useful. It's one of these things that seems really useful, but it's also depressing that this needs to exist, right? That, that's a problem we need to solve. And, um, you know, kudos to the Google engineers that, you know, built something that can scan the memory of all the virtual machine guests and spot things that look kind of crypto minery uh, and then alert on them. And I imagine you will see the other cloud providers do the same sort of thing. When I read this, though, I was a little bit... You know, the law of unintended consequences we sometimes run across in this industry and the amount of times over the years that you and I have talked about how um, the fact that you can make little, you know, small amounts of money by stealing other people's compute means that a bunch of dumb bugs that would otherwise lie unfixed forever get fixed because they get used for this. You know, yeah, the whole like crypto crypto miners as a as a sort of uh, canary bug, in the yeah, so like yes, a bug yeah. kind of a bug bounty style thing, right? Yeah, yeah. So maybe there would be some unintended consequences of of making this less effective, um, but. Yeah, I don't know because it's always like a thing it's, that should happen. It's always dumb bugs or brute force that <laughs> gets this stuff. You know, I don't know that everyone's rolling full Mandiant style incident response uh, when they find a crypto miner in their cloud environment. Uh, speaking of too, and I'm sure you caught the rumor too. Uh, just as we're recording, uh, the rumor mill is going into overdrive that Microsoft is going to buy Mandiant, which is, um, you know, no, <laughs> basically, because <laughs> you think about the number of Mandiant reports where they've outlined really you know, interesting hacks against my, I mean, just look at the SolarWinds one, right? Yes. Um, yeah. FireEye Mandiant did a report on that looking at, uh, you know, uh, Microsoft Azure abuse. And I just can't see Microsoft tolerating one of their own business units publishing those type of documents in the future. I mean, I'm happy to be surprised, but I just have a bad feeling about that if Microsoft mm. buys Mandiant, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, mm. I mean, I'm sure lots of people, you know, would make some money and maybe that's good, but yeah. 
oh, it does seem like perhaps not the world's best fit uh, for the rest of us that are used to, you know, as you say, reading good quality manual reporting that can sometimes be pretty on the nose. Yeah, I think it's a huge opportunity for some of the other majors, though, like Kroll, right? They must be sitting there licking their lips, hoping this happens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. Oh, dear. Uh, what else have we got? Oh, now this is an interesting one. Apparently the Wall Street Journal and the New York Post, these are both News Corp publications, uh, have been owned by a Chinese APT crew. Uh, and yeah, very interesting stuff because according to the reporting, we've seen previous attacks against media organizations where the APT crew has targeted business-related information. Uh, this very much looks like they were going after business information and some journalist inboxes, right? So probably they're on a source hunt is my feeling. Yes, obviously China has always been very concerned about how they're perceived from the outside and how they're reported on, and so news organisations are a pretty pretty natural target for them. And, and you know, keeping tabs on people who are you know sources for stories, keeping tabs on stories that are going to come up. Obviously, with the Olympics, Winter Olympics going on, you know, uh, understanding what Western media are going to say is probably a priority for them. Um, but yeah, the fact that this particular intrusion went in and did seem to focus on you know the news related properties of News Corp rather than some of their other you know other business arms does kind of suggest some intent and yeah preventing uh, and protecting your sources is such an important you know kind of tenant for journalists like this has got to feel pretty bad for them mm. um, and you know i you know, it's certainly not the only news organization we've seen targeted around the place um, and you know the fact that this has uh, been attributed to china does kind of send a message about how effective they are, you know, in going after targets that are, are important to them. Meanwhile, there's another Chinese crew using uh, an Ode and something called Zimbra. What <laughs> wow. is Zimbra? It's European government and media agencies, but what, what on earth is Zimbra? Uh, Zimbra is like an open source mail platform. It was like one of those kind of mid-2000s competitors to kind of Outlook Web Access and at Microsoft Exchange. Uh, and Sounds I'm great, in, man. <laughs> I, honestly, like I, I had that, uh, you know, that's a name I've not heard in a long time sort of moment uh, yeah. when I saw Zimbra up there because like it's, it's old and comes from a much earlier time where security was not really a thing and it's... Yeah, it's certainly not safe to put on the internet and there is clearly a bunch of it on the internet and the sort of European free software types, you know, everyone who pushed like European, you know, government agencies to go like all free software back in the mid 2000s, this is the software they would have pushed on them uh, and now it's getting them owned, you know, 25 years later. Yeah, that didn't work out, did it? <laughs> <laughs> not, not so well, no. Uh, I say this as I used to work for a company that sold like commercially supported Zimbra amongst other things. So, oh, yeah, like this, you this sounded one, a little bit, yeah, I could, I could yeah, sense this, some trauma in, in your voice. Yes, this, there, one, yeah. this one hurt me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we got one here written by Tim Starks for CyberScoop. Uh, and this is interesting, man, because you remember a couple of weeks ago, there was that report about uh, an intrusion into a data set belonging to the International Red Cross. And in specifically, this was a data set pertaining to something like half a million uh, refugees or displaced people uh, who were trying to reconnect, right? And I, you know, I said at the time a couple of weeks ago that this felt like SIGINT to me. This felt like a data set that would be of interest to uh, governments, particularly or specifically counterterrorism agencies, uh, particularly given what's happening in northern Syria right now, which is hectic. I mean, we don't have time to go into it here, but, you know, you can all go read about uh, the the resurgent ISIS and, you know, prison escapes and, and whatnot. What's interesting is the US State Department has now weighed in on this and uh, has described this hack as a dangerous development. I think this probably rules out the Americans as being behind <laughs> the intrusion, but as... 
Tom pointed out to me when we spoke about this, you never know, um, <laughs> but it is, it is certainly less likely now to be, uh, to be the Americans. But um, it, it's interesting, right? Because the State Department, you know, they're out there offering rewards uh, for uh, information about ransomware operators. They're offering rewards for information about Iranians uh, trying to interfere with the US election process. Now they're out here weighing in on a hack affecting the Red Cross and the Red Crescent, right? So it feels like... Yeah, not only is this commentary interesting as it pertains to this hack, but we are seeing more and more of this sort of stuff coming from the State Department. I think it's actually quite a positive development. Yeah, I mean, these things do affect relationships between states and, you know, seeing this as being, you know, part of, you know, international discourse, you know, it kind of reflects that this stuff is important, right? This data is important, how you use it is important, and who, you know, understanding who is doing what. Um, and you know the fact that they've been throwing reward money around elsewhere, you know, it's kind of good to see them engaging with this. That this is an issue that you know that the cybers are a thing that is getting enough attention and getting a bit of focus, you know, from from the State Department. Iran. Uh, this is another one from Catalan. Iran. Uh, the the national uh, TV broadcaster in Iran had its live stream jacked, and uh, you know, someone in a Guy Fawkes, a bearded Guy Fawkes mask, which I thought was a nice touch. <laughs> it was very nice. Touch. Um, he got on there and said, you know, the regime is bad. Uh, rise up, Iranians, uh, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I think this is the second time this has happened. Yes, we had one back in January where someone hijacked uh, the main TV channel and broadcast some anti-regime messages. Although this particular attack. Uh, was in the middle of a soccer game. So I'm sure that makes it, you know, significantly more impactful. Um, and they ran this, like, 50-second video with, the, you know, the, the bearded, the fake bearded um, Guy Fawkes mask for, like, a number of times during the soccer game until they managed to kind of get control of their streaming platform. But, yeah, gee, I wonder who could be behind this. Gee, well, I, wonder. I mean, it could be Israel. And I was thinking about this as well. I mean, it could be Israel or it could be local dissidents or, you know, there's the old chestnut of why not both, right? Because yes. I imagine... <laughs> You know, there are plenty of dissidents who would appreciate some support uh, from a neighbour that is opposed to the regime that they also hate. So who knows, Adam? Uh, we've got a report here from uh, Emma Woolacott over at the Daily Swig. Uh, the Open Source Security Foundation, uh, it's apparently launched a project called Alpha Omega. This follows the big powwow at the White House, which is, uh, you know, looking at how to improve the state of open source software supply chains. Uh, tell us about this project, Adam. Yeah, this is a project funded by uh, Microsoft and Google uh, that's going to kind of um, set out to try and solve some of these open source supply chain problems. Uh, the alpha part is focusing on really kind of high value pieces of software using you know Microsoft's data and GitHub and Google's data about you know what pieces of software have the most dependencies, what are the most important, and then fund some people to go and do security work on those projects, do some auditing, fix some bugs. Uh, the Omega half is a more broad brush using you know existing tooling or developing new tools to do you know broad inspection of open source software uh, you know go do code analysis and try and find you know examples of bugs that can be fixed on mass and we've kind of seen some of those approaches work you know through github's uh, efforts in the past uh, pretty effectively uh, so you know anything that's going to improve open source uh, software quality is useful and i think this is an approach that reflects the um, you know there was a lot of talk after log4j about how open source software needed more funding 
And there was an interview with, you know, one of the Log4j developers where he said, you know, the funding is not really the main thing. Like, we have a bunch of other motivations, which I think was a conversation you and I had at the time. Yeah. Um, and so this way of doing it, like contributing developer resources, going and funding, you know, perhaps people who work at Google on, you know, security research to go and contribute to a bunch of open source projects and kind of guide that work, you know, is a good way to spend funding rather than just, you know, throwing it at the Apache Foundation or whoever else. Yeah, we're actually linking through to an interview that Catalan did uh, with is one of the maintainers of Log4j. This is someone who works on the Apache logging, uh, you know, bit. And yeah, he's published a, a, a Q&A over at the record and uh, it's definitely worth a look. So I've, I've, I've published that link into this week's show notes and you can find it uh, there. Staying with supply chain news though, uh, NPM has done something sensible and forced the top 100 package maintainers to use 2FA, which is, you know, it's a great thing, but you just think, geez, you know, like the fact that some of the top 100 NPM packages were being contributed to by developer accounts that weren't using 2FA is just, oh my <laughs> yes. God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and of course, this only solves a part of the problem. There's plenty of yeah. people who've, you know, uh, sold their, you know, their commit rights or whatever else to other people. Um, but yes, definitely a smart move. And, you know, the fact that NPM and GitHub and Microsoft and Google are, you know, all kind of working together uh, on this stuff, you know, we are going to see some effect. They're in a position to affect a bunch of change in that ecosystem um, that when it was much more distributed, we were less able to do. So this is really good. Now, a company that knows a lot uh, about what it's like to be on the receiving end of credit card theft, Target, uh, has open sourced a web skimmer detector, which I think is uh, is pretty awesome, actually. I love, I love when we see non-security companies, big companies, go and just like, uh, open source stuff that they developed that's genuinely useful. And this looks pretty cool, actually. Yeah, this is a, a project they call Merrymaker uh, that essentially is like a, a web test framework that hooks up to your website and goes through the kind of shopping cart process, you know, browses products, sticks some things in its cart, goes through the payment process, through the checkouts, you know, using, uh, I, I'm, I'm assuming, some kind of browser engine to do so, um, much like you would for normal functional testing, but it does it in a way that then also validates all the resources that get loaded, looks for signatures of known, you know, major cart style javascript injection you know uh, skimming tools or credit card theft tools uh, or you can give it yarrow rules to go look for stuff uh, and then you know, flags an alert up uh, to the security team you know if it finds something that matches one of its signatures and that kind of security focused you know uh, user testing seems like a really useful thing i don't i don't recall really seeing something quite like that before uh, mm. so yeah it seems like a really cool project i don't know like how much work it would be to hook it up you know, to your e-commerce site or, uh, you know, how effective it's going to be, like how much maintenance you'd have to do on the rules or the or whatever else. So, but yeah, still a really, you know, it's really, it's really cool seeing, a, you know, an organization like that come up and open source something that does seem like, well, at least for them, I'm sure it solved some pretty real problems. Yeah, well, I think their major credit card breach was something like a decade ago, right? And, you know, we've seen this countless times where some organization has a catastrophic breach and then all of a sudden, you know, five, ten years later, they got one of the best security teams in the business, right? Because they, <laughs> they know. They know, Adam. They know how it feels. They yes. know how it feels. Yeah. Uh, we got a really funny one here from Andy Greenberg. This story <laughs> says, so you know how North Korea has been going around trying to steal exploits from people by saying, hey, you know, I've got this uh, edge bug that I can't quite trigger, you know, do you want to help me uh, work on it? And then they send like a project file that tries to pop shell or whatever. So... <laughs> apparently one of the people that North Korea targeted is behind uh, 
taking taking down North Korea's internet as like <laughs> a one man crusade to impose cost. Um, that's what the story argues anyway. But my question to you, Adam, and this again, this was written by Andy Greenberg over at Wired. My question to you is: Do we believe this story? I mean, there have been a bunch of outages uh, of things on the North Korean internet. We've seen reports of you know some of the propaganda websites and externally facing stuff becoming unavailable or being patchy. Apparently, the person who has been talking to Andy Greenberg did provide some evidence that they were you know in control or behind some of these you know were responsible for some of those things. There isn't really any direct evidence in the story presented, but I mean, Andy Greenberg does kind of you know he's a solid reporter, but. I mean, like, does it pass the sniff test? Uh, I mean, it, sure. I mean, I, I think a one-man vigilante could probably take down North Korea's, you know, cause significant outages to North Korea's internet. So, you know, but I mean, it's everything from like bugs. yeah, hitting hitting engine X bugs, hitting like government web servers, and also like taking down core routers and stuff uh, with DOS conditions. So you like that's that's you know, I mean, why not? Right? It's not like the North Koreans are going to come and arrest you. Well, no, I mean, they might come and do something else. That's right, But yes. uh, Which, you know, <laughs> I think if it was me, that would be my concern, perhaps. Um, but, uh, I mean, it could absolutely be true. I mean... <laughs> well, it's, I a fun, imagine it's a fun read anyway. Let's just choose to believe. I want to yes, believe. I, I want to believe also. And it's not yeah. like the North Koreans can patch their stuff regularly, you know. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. why not? Why not? And Adam, uh, cue the Benny Hill music. Uh, we're going to close out this week's show. I guess this is just, you know... Sign of the times. There's been another one of those. I, I think this one broke just as I was finishing last week's show, uh, but some cryptocurrency platform called Wormhole uh, got themselves owned for $322 million of internet funny money. Uh, kind of hilarious. Kind of hilarious. Yeah. They were one of these like currency bridges that uses Ethereum smart contracts to kind of move money between different blockchains. And of course, there were bugs in it. Uh, and yeah, someone helped themselves to a whole bunch of money. And, and they are, as is customary, offering like, you know, $10 million reward to whoever did it if they would just give the $300 million worth of Ether back. And, <sighs> I mean, it, yeah, I don't know. Like, it makes me angry these people are in charge of so much money <laughs> just throwing it around like this. Oh, it's uh, okay. It's okay. Yeah. It's all going to go wrong for them, Adam. Don't it worry. It's, it don't will, worry. I hope, yes. They'll get their comeuppance eventually, I hope. Yeah, it's okay. It'll go wrong for them. Uh, but Adam, that is actually it for this week's news. Uh, thanks a lot for joining us. It's great to have you back. Uh, and we're going to do this all again in uh, two weeks from now. Yeah, thanks very much, Pat. I'll talk to you then. That was Adam Boileau there with the check of the week's security news. Big thanks to him for that. It is time for this week's sponsor interview now with Ted Driggs, ExtraHop's director of product. ExtraHop is an NDR vendor, uh, network detection and response, and you can find them at extrahop.com. Anyway, as I mentioned at the top of the show about a year ago, we had Ted on the show to talk about the concept of a software bill of behaviours. Uh, the interview came around uh, just after the SolarWinds hack and everyone was going mad for software bills of material, but Ted and his colleagues' idea is more about having uh, you know, software behaviour 
documented, right? Like this software will reach out to these domains and IPs. Uh, it'll interact with other systems in this way, things like that. Uh, they're not calling it a bill of behaviors anymore. Uh, it's a, it's more like a, I think the terminology they use is a behavior manifest. Uh, but Ted joined me to talk about uh, where they're up to with all of this today, right? Now, as it turns out, a lot of this data is already being collected and maintained by security vendors, but there's not much of a push to make it open, let alone sort of standardized and centralized. And that's something uh, he hopes to change. Here's Ted Driggs. What we found is that a lot of the data that we are describing in these behavior transparency needs is being collected in various forms by existing security vendors with large footprints. So these there are proprietary data sets that track which pieces of software exhibit which behaviors, and those data sets are being maintained by threat research teams, by telemetry from EDR products. The data collection is happening through a variety of sources. And as a result, we're seeing duplicative effort on the vendor side and not much of a push towards making that open. Yeah, um, and, and, and the EDR vendors don't really want to share this stuff because to them it's their competitive advantage, right? It's certainly a competitive advantage of theirs. I think there's also an element here of each company has built the data set that matches precisely what they need. So signing up to do more work. So concretely, I might say that this URL is unusual for this particular process to reach out to. But I have not gone as far as trying to figure out whether or not this URL is attributable to that vendor's intended behavior. So what we've seen is a variety of EDR tools that have different techniques for trying to match those up, whether it's looking at public documentation, looking at endpoint telemetry, looking at firewall data, running it in a lab and seeing what happens. So we see a lot of people who are almost there, in, but coming from different angles, right? And a lot of that is then being fed into various ML, ML models. So it's somewhat opaque even to the vendor of like how unusual this is for this particular program. And so the data is out there. And a year ago, we talked about this from the problem of duplication of effort on the SOC side. What we found is that there's similar duplication of effort on the vendor side. I mean, this, this conversation is kind of reminding me of the days when, you know, AV vendors would hoard SIGs you know, signatures. And this is going back a long time because it didn't take that industry too long to figure out that they could share their signatures, right? And as long as people, everyone contributed and no one was being a complete parasite, this became, you know, there was a massive efficiency gain there, especially as this, this sort of happened when malware really started proliferating, right? And it just didn't make sense to have everyone trying to keep track. Yeah, and that's even more true today. And one of the other things that we've seen here is, so Cisco has made available TLS fingerprints of known good programs, right? So they've held back ones for malicious programs to make it harder for malware authors to evade detection, but they've provided fingerprints of known good programs available publicly. So the proposal here is moving, is not proposing that we make the known bad stuff public, but is instead proposing that we make only the known good public. And that is information that should be of less competitive value to the various security vendors that have built these data sets and should be easier to maintain with collaboration from the people that built the, software, the monitored software itself. 
So what, what's been the response like from some of these vendors? Because I can imagine when you come in and you start saying, hey, we're trying to build out this collaboration, uh, the benefits are going to be massive. You know, I just get the sense that everyone's so busy at these places, at these vendors that, you know, probably your biggest challenge is maybe some executive says, look, that sounds like a good idea. But then finding the bandwidth, finding the people to actually meaningfully contribute to some, to some sort of initiative like this, I'd imagine could be quite difficult. Yes. And plenty of people said, hey, if this existed, that would be great and we'd love to contribute. But being the first to buy into it is not something that they have a lot of enthusiasm for. They don't want to put time and effort into a thing that nobody else shows up to. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. So look, the other challenge here, and I'm guessing this is probably a step that you're, that you're working on now, is as you as you've said like a lot of edr companies networking vendors all sorts of companies have bits of this data uh some of them have more complete sets than others but but this data is out there then you've got to decide you know how do you share this stuff in some sort of uniform way that is meaningful right and so how, how much work have you done on what a software bill of behavior or what what's the new term that you like uh, behavior transparency manifest. Okay, so what's what's your uh, preferred format for a behavior uh, uh, manifest, right? So can you can you walk us through that? Because I'd imagine you've done some serious work there. Yes, we have. So we decided to err on the side of the simplest thing that could possibly work, and what that led us to was to make a Git repo with a folder by vendor, and then a folder by product, and then a list of JSON documents that are the manifests underneath that. If you want to contribute, you write a manifest and add it. If you are a vendor who needs to be taking updates, whenever there's a new commit, you pull it and process it into whatever format you care about. So one of the things that we leveraged here was that for you can get about 80% of publicly visible software through one single database and sidestep a lot of server discovery issues that have plagued taxi sticks and sort of made that into a protocol, but made it hard to get a global picture. That was part of the shift to the name change around transparency was we feel that it's important that these are not just passed from ISV to customer, but that they are, whenever possible, publicly inspectable. Well, and that makes sense as well, because it's going to make vendors' lives easier in terms of trying to use this data, make use of it, right? Uh, instead of having to go try to chase down that data from their users, um, yeah, having it in one place makes a lot of sense. But what sort of information, I mean, you, you're going to have, say, in these JSON files, what, do you, what are you going to have in there? Like, I'd imagine it's going to be, you know, IPs and domains associated with the software, maybe information about whether or not it will occasionally reach out to a domain that's not on the list, you know? Like, are there flags, like reaches out to rando domains, reaches out to uh, customer configurable domains, things like that? Great question. So, where we started out was there was a flag on the document that says non-exhaustive so that something can say, hey, this list is incomplete. And there are a lot of reasons it turns out that a list can be incomplete. One is customer configurability. One is um, you don't know about something. So until you're sure that your build process is mature enough to catch all the domains, you don't want a firewall vendor, say, blocking connections to some mission critical domain that you don't know about. So. There's this notion of this list of behaviors is complete. There's a strong notion of versioning of the, the manifest schema. So whenever we would add a new behavior type to the schema, that would require a version bump. And that way, if I've got a document that says, hey, I'm complete at v1.1 of the schema, any behavior that wasn't defined by v1.1 
is presumed not to be described by your doc. So when you bump to v1.2, you would say, okay, uh, I'm not exhaustive on 1.2 yet. I'm still running down whether this list of behaviors is truly complete against the 1.2 behavior types. As we talked to different vendors, we found different behaviors that would be of interest. So one of the things that we feel fairly strongly about is these need to be behaviors that an ISV will know that they are exhibiting. So for EDR, there's a bunch of things that people may do in their program that look weird to EDR. But if the developers of the software that is exhibiting the behavior don't know that they're doing it, that makes it a bad fit for uh, inclusion in this manifest. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I can see there would be cases where, you know, there's a bit of a carrot here for the EDR vendors as well, which is if developers are providing the correct manifests, they might be able to actually cut down on some false positives in EDR land, which is, you know, in any technology like that, they spend 80% of their time chasing down the the 1% edge cases, right? And false positives are a big part of that. So, so has there been any enthusiasm on that end of it for the, ED, you know, because I imagine the EDR vendors have been looking at this as like, we're not giving up our special source. Um, and they're looking at this as, well, if we were to, for some sort of community exercise, okay, what's in it for us? But I could imagine if something like this became more universal, there would be some real advantages for the EDR companies themselves. Yeah. So one of the biggest advantages is the idea of attributing particular connections to particular documented behavior. So as we had these conversations, we found that one of the places that EDR vendors who have a telemetry-based approach to this struggle with is explaining why this piece of software contacts that domain, right? So if we think back to Sunburst, they the payloads that it sent looked an awful lot like some sort of product improvement telemetry. And it took a fairly close inspection to see what was actually going on. But if the maker of the software provides a link to the documentation or provides a one-sentence summary of what this particular connection type is being used for, then that can help the SOC analyst understand whether the connection they're seeing makes any sense and can help an EDR vendor I mean, better understand the traffic that's coming out of a program. It kind of gives you an application-specific allow list uh, and it allows you to get a lot more granular with that. You know, this isn't an allow listing approach per se, but it's, you know, there's some allow listing thinking in it. So... The idea with the exhaustive or non-exhaustive flag is precisely that applications which are competent in their knowledge of their external connections can indicate to whether it's a host-based firewall, network-based firewall that they do not let me connect to sure anything else. Yes, block. yes. And and this is this is kind of what I'm getting at is then there's almost a competitive advantage. I can imagine there would be a situation where a lot of vendors would love to be able to set that flag because it becomes something for the sales team to say, hey, you set this flag and then bang, it just all plugs in. It's all wonderful. So so uh, riddle me this. Um, I know you were having conversations with uh, people at the NTIA. Uh, this is a US government agency. Um, how have those conversations been going? How have they progressed? Is the is the US government interested in, in backing this or is it still something that they're just finding interesting and kind of waiting to see what you do with it, which I'm guessing, if I had to guess, that's what they're, they're doing because that's how it usually goes. Yes. They, so the NGIA expressed appreciation for more eyes on the question of upfront descriptions of the software that are being admitted to critical environments. Um, 
and put us in touch with the team working on Cyclone DX, which is a one of the SBOM specifications. So Cyclone DX 1.3 includes a notion of services is what they call them. And those services have some overlap with behavior transparency. The challenge that we ran into there and where we XDROP ended up contributing some code to Cyclone DX, and we think that it's a phenomenal project for SBOMs, but we don't think that it's going to be sufficient to address all the behavior transparency needs. For one, there is the vendor reluctance to make SBOMs public. Another is that SBOMs are generated with the initial piece of software. So any flaws in that service definition that is shipped with the SBOM, there's not a way to update later, right? Which is kind of by design, because if I give you a piece of software, its components are not going to change. So I should be building that SBOM when I built that software and hand it to you, right? So one of the big discussions that has arisen since uh, the last time we spoke is how vulnerability information propagates in an SBOM world. Uh, there are those who want to include vulnerability information what, like in CVEs? the SBOM itself. CVEs? Yes. No, that's not what this is for. Stop. Make it stop. Please, Ted, can you make them stop that? I, I will do my best. I mean, the, so the argument there is that when it, if, if you're sending the component information downstream and you don't have a mechanism for distributing vulnerability information about, like, let's say I'll come back Look, to I can, I, I, for it, day, my, my My gut reacted to that, but, you know, thinking on it, it actually doesn't sound like a terrible idea. I mean, if this was just, if this just became the accepted way to distribute vulnerability information, like it does seem a pretty good place to get, to, to put it. I mean, you know. It is and isn't a terrible idea, which is kind of the tricky bit. Yeah, right? yeah. Personally, I think that you want an immutable SBOM and you probably have something in that SBOM that provides a way to match that up with subsequent separate channel vulnerability updates, right? Whether that's saying, hey, I mean, that's this the issue. And it's kind of what this... you it's kind of what you came back to about that immutability, right? When, you know, I, I get yeah, it hurts. It's, it's It kind of hurts my head because initially I thought that's a terrible idea. And then I thought, hang on, maybe that's a good idea. Now I'm back to thinking it's a terrible idea. I'm going to need to go away and think about this, Ted Driggs. So look, where to next? Do you think there is, um, you know, do you think this collaboration with the Cyclone DX uh, team is is going to eventually get there? Or do you think you need to go away and spin up something else? And how, how can people get involved? Like what's the next, what's the next step? What's the future of all of this? So... I think that Cyclone DX is going to continue to provide better and better visibility for organizations about the software that they are admitting into their environments um, when vendors participate in building that SBOM. I think that we're going to continue to see a need for information about behaviors. And in, if we rewind the clock to Sunburst, if somebody had been able to compromise the build server of Orion as much as they did, right? They could have injected the domain name associated with the Sunburst campaign into the SBOM that was generated and delivered with Orion, right? And it's not clear how SolarWinds would have necessarily caught that because, or how somebody would have noticed the, the change because those documents are not public. So there's probably some synergy of the rigor that will go into defining services for the, the SBOM will make behavior transparency generation easier. But the, there will still be these competing needs to have the SBOM include information that vendors aren't comfortable making public and having behavior transparency be public so that any modifications are immediately known and there is a global understanding of what behaviors go with what software. 
So how do people get involved? I mean, who's really running this initiative now? So extrahub.com slash behavior transparency is still the best way to get in touch with us. And we will put people in touch with other interested parties. Ted Driggs, thank you very much for joining us to to walk us through, uh, you know, what's happened over the last 12 months. When we initially spoke about this, um, I think, geez, I mean, I think it's probably one of the most sort of commented on uh, sponsor interviews we've ever done in this show. I had people reaching out to me from everywhere saying, gee, that's a really interesting and, and good idea, you know. So I'm glad it, it, it wasn't just a thought bubble and that it's progressing. And um, yeah, again, thank you for joining us to, to talk through it all. Thank you very much. That was Ted Driggs there from Extra Hop. Big thanks to Extra Hop for sponsoring this week's edition of the show and for providing us with a really, really interesting sponsor interview. Uh, you can get involved in this push for uh, behavior transparency by heading to extrahop.com slash behavior transparency. And you can spell behavior the American way or with the correct spelling and either will work. I checked. And that is it for this week's show. I do hope you enjoyed it. Uh, as I said uh, earlier, there is no weekly show next week, but I will be running an interview with the CISO from Equinix and he'll be talking through his company's experience in getting ransomware. Uh, it's a detailed case study. It's really interesting and it'll be up about the same time as I would normally push out uh, the regular show. Uh, but until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.